Father, we thank you for your great faithfulness that throughout my life, throughout the lives of my brothers and sisters here, there's never been a time where you have abandoned us, where you have failed to take care of us, where you have failed to keep a promise to us. You have always been faithful. And I'm so, so grateful for that. I pray as we look at your faithfulness to, well, Mary and Elizabeth. No, 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 John the Baptist, sorry. Uh, to Elizabeth and Zacharias and uh, bringing John into their lives and as the forerunner of the Messiah. I pray, God, that you would just give us ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So on Sunday, that's why I got confused. I looked at my notes and I shouldn't have done that while I was praying. On Sunday, we looked at the wonderful interaction between Mary and Elizabeth. And we looked at Mary's song of praise to God. Today, we're going to delve into the birth of John the Baptist and see Zechariah's prophecy concerning his son's ministry. Now, you do have to keep in mind that from the time the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple when he was burning incense at the hour of prayer at the beginning of this chapter. Till now, nine and a half, ten months, give or take, have gone by. Right? We, can, we can read it pretty quickly, but this has been a while. Now that becomes really important because Zacharias is still mute. So it makes me wonder... Um, I'm just musing out loud right now. But it makes me wonder if, you know, he got home, Elizabeth got pregnant, and he's like, yeah, but is it really going to be a boy? Is it really going to be this John character that I'm supposed to, you know, raise? And throughout the time, Mary shows up, pregnant with Jesus, baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb, Gabriel told Zacharias, that the, the, the baby Elizabeth would carry would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. So there, that happens right in front of him. But he doesn't start to speak yet. So again, I'm wondering, ah, the baby probably just kicked. I, I mean, was, was Zacharias like the all-time pessimist or skeptic? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But I can't help but think that he did not truly believe what Gabriel told him until after John was born, because it wasn't until then that he was relieved of his muteness. So that's just me thinking out loud. So, John's birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Uh, actually, just for a moment, remember in verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Then verse 57, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Um, so Mary was not there when John the Baptist was born. She had left. So she brought forth a son, and when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, 
There was no one among your relatives who was called by this name. So they made signals to his father what he would have called him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelled around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So Elizabeth's time comes. She gives birth to a son. Her neighbors and family rejoice with her at the great mercy God had shown her. At this point in time, her uh, cultural shame, as it were, was lifted. And it came to the eighth day when they were commanded to circumcise male children. They would take them to the temple, or if they weren't near the temple, a synagogue or something local, where uh, a, a priest or leader in the synagogue, uh, and today they call them a moil, uh, was trained to do this, and that was when they would name them. You can read about some of that back in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. And this is where things get interesting. They want to name the child after his father, Zacharias. His name means, uh, you probably don't remember because I didn't, I had to look it up again, uh, Jehovah has remembered, which was tradition, right? When you had your firstborn son, they usually in some way, shape, or form bore the name of their father. That's how the family name was passed down because they didn't have last names or surnames back then. <clears throat> Elizabeth said, nope, we're going to call him John which means Jehovah has been gracious. And this was perplexing because they had no one by that name in the family, right? It wasn't like grandpa's name or there wasn't an Uncle John or something that they wanted to honor with this name. But Elizabeth's word wasn't good enough. In that culture, a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in court. Um, you, you know, so, well, I want to call him John. And the people were like, well, too bad. You're, you're just a woman. And it's not up to you. So they asked Zacharias. Now he made signs, or they made signs to Zacharias. So that apparently means that he was not only mute, but Gabriel made him deaf as well. Because they didn't just ask him, and then he asked for a writing tablet. Instead, they made signs like, hey, Zacharias, what do you want to name the kid? You know, and so he was probably deaf as well as mute. And he made signs asking for a tablet, and out of obedience to God. He named his son John. Sometimes, I think it takes us a little while to come around. <coughs> However, once God makes it abundantly clear that what he wants for us is right in front of us, then we have to surrender. And that's what we see. At this point in time, right, Elizabeth's pregnant. How do I know it's a boy? Oh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe he just kicked. Wait a second. I've had a son. Everything that Gabriel said was going to happen has come true. I can't help but think that he would probably also remember, if you uh, flip back a little bit, I just have to get that page to cooperate, um, some of the other things he said. Like in verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him 
and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So I can't help but think all of that came rushing into Zechariah's mind at this moment. And then we see three things happen. We see three results. Zacharias was given his voice back, and he immediately used it to praise God. Isaiah 40, verse 9 says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Second, fear came upon all those, and word spread, making it so people wondered what kind of child he would be. You see, Zacharias knew. I'm guessing Elizabeth knew. I imagine in that time period, Zacharias shared with her everything Gabriel had said. In Luke 7, 16, this of course is speaking of Jesus, but it says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. When it says fear came upon them, I don't think they were scared of John the Baptist. I don't think they were scared of Zacharias. I think this caused their reverential fear towards God to increase greatly. I think that's what's going on. Wait a second. He's speaking. He's breaking tradition, naming this kid John. Huh, God must be doing something. God's got to be at work in this. How cool is that? And I think that's the type of fear that came upon them. Third, we get this testimony that God's hand was with John, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, or from the womb, sorry. Filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb and having God's gracious hand upon him from birth. And we know he had many interactions with Jesus. Most likely they grew up together because they were only about six months apart in age. And Mary and Elizabeth were related. So John the Baptist, having great interaction with the whole triune nature of God. That's pretty sweet if you ask me. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that verse comes on the wings of God reassuring the nation. But that's a reality for John the Baptist throughout his entire life. It's a reality for us. God's hand is upon us. He dwells inside us via his Holy Spirit, promised to never leave us or forsake us, promised that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. And yet sometimes we get the wrong kind of fear. Not fear of God, but fear of a situation. And I'm not saying this to pick on anybody, because I do it. I would love to say, I, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, so much holier than all of you, that I never have that problem. But that would be a lie. And I don't like to lie while I'm preaching. I don't like to lie in general, but especially not while I'm preaching. Because sometimes we get scared. 
And God has given us his word to reassure us that he's always going to be with us. Then something just beautiful happens. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zacharias, his tongue was really loosed. Because not only was he able to give him worship and praise, then he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he becomes a prophet. In verses 67 through 75, Zacharias praises God for his redemption, for the fulfillment of his promises to his people through Israel by sending the Messiah. At this point, Zacharias understands that John is the forerunner of the Messiah's first coming to Israel, and he would have spent time with Mary. Remember, she was there for several months, so I'm sure him there with his little tablet had conversations, or at least was listening in, as Mary and Elizabeth talked. And so he certainly knew she was carrying the Messiah, and Zacharias rejoices at this. He rejoices in fulfilled prophecy, which prophecy is confirmation of the divine authorship of Scripture and the accuracy of the Bible for us. Prophecy, I'm going to say this again, confirmation of the divine authorship of Scripture and the accuracy of the Bible for us. If you want to have your mind blown, and you have never heard the prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27 taught properly, uh, you can check it out on Beware the Caffeinated Pastor, my YouTube page. Just go to the Daniel study, go to Daniel chapter 9, and look up those, those studies on those verses. The most incredible prophecy in all of Scripture. It prophesied to the day that Jesus would present himself as Messiah to Israel. But that's what prophecy does. Old Testament says Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. New Testament says that's where he was born. Right? Old Testament says he's going to bring light to the Jews and the Gentiles and offer salvation. And that's what he did. The Old Testament prophesied his death and he died. The Old Testament prophesied his resurrection and he rose. And we can look at that and we can have confidence in the word of God because of it. Second, 
He rejoices in fulfilled promises because God always keeps his word to his people. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. Joshua 23.14, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Matthew 24.35 Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Isaiah 55.11 So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I love that. God's word will never fail. He notes, finally, that God keeping his word to his people would allow them to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And this is what we should want We should want, as followers of Christ, a life of holiness and righteousness. Not only a life of holiness and righteousness that he gives us because of our position in Christ when we get saved, but also a life of holiness and righteousness which is given to us by God's grace and then we can walk in it through the power of God's Spirit in us. Because he has not given us a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but he has called each of us to serve him for all the days of our lives. So here's a question. And this question is often asked in leadership circles and you know in motivational speeches. And I've read about it or read this question in more than one book. But the question says this. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? Not if you knew you would not fail but knew you could not fail. And I'm going to propose this. When we follow God's will for our lives, empowered by his spirit, built upon the sure foundation of his word, we cannot fail. I know, that's a little bit of a bold statement. Because anybody here failed? I've done it. What does that mean? Well, that probably means that I wasn't walking in God's will for my life or I wasn't living a life of holiness and righteousness empowered by his spirit, right? There's reasons that aren't God's fault. They're mine. But when you follow God's will for your life empowered by his spirit, built upon the foundation of his world, I I don't believe we can fail. Now, according to the world's standards, it may look like we failed. Right? Because maybe we don't make millions of dollars. Or maybe we don't have uh, 100,000 Instagram followers, which I don't think is really a sign of success, but I'm just saying. You know, maybe people don't repeat my TikTok dance videos. If you guys aren't nice, I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But maybe... A person never runs a Fortune 500 company. Maybe a person doesn't become famous or doesn't get elected to political office or who knows. And so the world may look at that person 
I mean, honestly, think of the world's opinion of Jesus. He was raised eventually in a single-parent home because sometime after he was 12, Joseph died. He was a carpenter. He, he worked, well, he was a craftsman, so he did more than just carpentry, but, but he worked with his hands. He wasn't, at first, a rabbi or a political influencer or a scribe or a Pharisee, none of those things. He had no home. He told us that. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Ultimately, he was rejected by his people. Brutally tortured and crucified. From the world's perspective, he was an absolute failure. Until Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, he rose in victory. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't pausing for an amen, but thank you. We may look for our 80 or 90 or however many years we get here. We may look like an utter failure in the world's eyes. But if we are following God's will, empowered by his spirit, built on the foundation of his word, when our resurrection comes, like our Savior Jesus Christ, go read Ephesians chapter 2. We were talking about it, not right now, but later. <laughs> we were talking about it in our elders meeting today. We will rise in the same victory that he rose. That should give us great confidence. In verses 76 through 79, we see his specific prophecy concerning his son. He calls him the prophet who prepares. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. This is how John goes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Prophesied earlier in Luke 1.17 by Gabriel, um, Jesus recognized it in Matthew 11.14, and it was prophesied uh, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 originally. His message would be a message of repentance, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And we're going to study John's message of repentance much more in chapter 3. Uh, but we must not be afraid to preach the importance of repenting from sin and turning towards God through Jesus Christ to be forgiven. We shouldn't shy away from that message. It is part of the truth of the gospel. I was, uh, my daughters hate this when I do it, I'm, so I'm going to do it just for them. When I describe to you a meme that I saw on social media. Because how do you describe a meme? That's not the point of a meme. But there's this meme, and you know, floating around this time of year, they start doing all the stuff like, um, you know, the Elf on the Shelf comparisons. Uh, you've heard of Elf on the Shelf, you know, and then they put a duck on top of a buck. But have you heard of a duck on a buck, right? And, and all, all of these silly, silly various things. But I saw one that says, you've heard of Elf on a Shelf, and it had the little picture of the elf. But then it says, but have you heard of repenting of your sins and following Jesus? I like that. I thought that one was pretty good. Because if we're going to rejoice in the good news of our forgiveness and salvation, then we have to know what we've been saved from. 
and this giving knowledge of salvation to his people, when you go read the book of John, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he has a ministry of God's mercy, to the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring, and that day spring is a horrible translation. I mean, it sounds kind of nice. We sang about it in uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But the word literally means dawn of the Messiah. So that verse should read, through the tender mercy of our God with which the dawn of the Messiah from on high has visited us. To me, that's just so much more powerful than Dayspring. So John's message of repentance was laying the groundwork for the Messiah to speak his message, the gospel message to the world. And finally, his would be a ministry of hope. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the ministry of Jesus. He declares this of himself in Luke 4, which we will see when we get to Luke chapter 4. But Jesus, the light of the world, came to give light to those who are trapped in the darkness of sin and death. As he does this, he guides our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace, of course, is following in the steps of Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9-2, and this is repeated in Matthew chapter 4, says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, verse 80, uh, this is, we close, we're given the testimony of John's upbringing. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation of Israel, a manifestation that we will study later on in the book. As we explore the birth of John the Baptist and his father's prophecy over his birth, we can see God. We see him fulfilling prophecy and his promises to his people, promises which we are able to receive and benefit from. We see God working to arrange everything perfectly for the ministry of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We see God using Zacharias to teach us the accuracy and reliability of his word. We see God doing all of this so he could save us from our sin through Jesus and then lead us into lives that honor him as we live and serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. I'm going to point out one more thing. This isn't written in my conclusion, but I noticed as I went through that I forgot to put it in my notes. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus tells us, and I don't have this reference, but we'll get there because I believe it's in Luke. Jesus tells us that among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. Now, when God, in the flesh, says that you are the greatest human ever born, up to that point, I'm thinking that's pretty good. And then Jesus goes on to say that he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater. And those of us who believe in Jesus 
even if we are the least in the kingdom of God. The new covenant is so much more superior than the old covenant. We studied that repeatedly as we went through the book of Hebrews. So as we close, I'll just say this. May God grant each of us his grace and strength to internalize these truths, to hold to them by the power of his spirit, and to let his truth be our guide, knowing his word will never fail, but will always accomplish what he sends it forth to accomplish. To him be all the glory. In Jesus' name.